Hello, med students. This is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Pearson Rabbits Insurance. Stephanie Pearson at Pearson Rabbits is my personal disability and life insurance agent. I have had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Pearson speak on multiple occasions now, and one of the things that always really impresses me is her ability to teach and just how smart she is on this topic. She has spoken locally at my hospital. I've also heard her speak on a more international uh, level at a big conference. She knows so many just little details and facts and nuances of this purchase that I would never have ever been able to figure out myself. Every time I've listened to her, she's teaching me things new, despite the fact that I read up on disability insurance when I purchased it, had my own conversations with her in the in the process of setting this up on my own, and then continued to learn about it because I'm advertising, and so I need to know a little bit about disability insurance because of that. And she's still teaching me new things every time I hear her. She is so smart. She's an educator at heart, and it's one of the reasons why I trust her. Go to www pearsonrabbits.com, fill out a contact form, set up a phone call or something to, to talk about disability insurance. You should be buying this when you are a resident, in my opinion. Thank you to Pearson Rabbits for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get into it. This is part two on our two-part series on the future of emergency medicine. In the first part of this, I talked about several of the, the reasons why I truly love emergency medicine. And I do. And actually, I have grown to like it more as an attending than I even liked it as a, as a resident, which was more than when I liked it as a student. I truly love this specialty. But now we're going to talk about what everyone's been waiting for, which is the future of the specialty, and specifically this workforce report that came out a couple years ago. Now, I want to kind of paint the picture because a lot of you guys didn't see this, I don't think, from your, your side of things. But like I'm a partner in, at my job in my current emergency medicine group. When COVID happened, there were no patients. Like the specialty was just dead in the water because anyone with low acuity stuff or medium acuity stuff wasn't going because they didn't want to catch this, this illness. So you lost like all of this fast track, low acuity stuff. And then, and honestly, a lot of high acuity stuff too. People just didn't come in. And then you had COVID coming in, but then they were in the hospital for 30 days, 45, you know, really prolonged periods of time. And so they would stack up. So you ran into this like boarding situation. And when boarding happens, usually the only thing you can spin through is some of the low acuity stuff. And really what ended up happening is there was just no, we couldn't see very many patients at all. Like there was no income. So when you're working as a group like mine, and we have, I don't know how many, let's say 50, 50 people working for our group, doctors and PAs and nurse practitioners. When you are working in that setting and all of a sudden you're income just goes to nothing, right? It just drops off. I mean, it didn't go completely to nothing, but significantly drops. This was the same everywhere around the country. Groups were having to do layoffs. Our group, rather than laying people off, we just took like across the board, big pay cuts, like the administrator people of our group, like their administrative stipends dropped off. Um, just big pay cuts for everybody because we're just trying to stay afloat. When that's happening, you're not hiring like a fresh grad out of residency, like come on board, it's time to recruit. Like, no, we were trying not to like do layoffs. Like it was really, really bad situation. And for the record, this wasn't just emergency medicine. I mean, that's what you, you hear about, but like all elective procedures being canceled for months right? It was like that kind of stuff going on. So like medicine had really shut down. And it is in that setting that this workforce report came out. And I think one of the things that happened is because you had these residents with difficulty finding jobs during this period of COVID, right? Because 
nobody's hiring because there's just no patients. During that period of time, this workforce report comes out projecting that in 2030 now, you're going to have this oversupply of emergency physicians and it's going to be hard to find a job. And so everyone freaks out and Reddit freaks out. And, you know, we all know kind of what the discussion is out there on this topic. I want to be very clear here, though. There's a difference between what happened. With COVID, the specialty, like, ceased to function. Like, there were no patients. So the specialty just went, it was, again, it was dead in the water. With what's going to happen in the future, there's going to be a lot more geriatric cases, a lot more people are living longer, uh, expansion of the scope of our own specialty. And so the specialty is going to actually be very, very big. It's just we overshot and there's we're training way too many people. And so effectively, it's going to feel like there's not that many jobs. However, with COVID, there were no jobs. With this, there's going to be tons of jobs, just lots of competition, okay? So that's a difference. And you're like, well, what's, how does that affect me and my decision on the future, you know, on what I should do? Well, there's a big difference. There are three reasons. So I will say up front, I am optimistic about the future of the specialty. Uh, that probably doesn't surprise you because I'm a very enthusiastic about the specialty. But there's three reasons why I'm actually cautiously optimistic moving forward that things are actually going to be, that are, things are looking up even compared to where they are now. And it's because of this increased competition. So number one, and I have to be careful how I say this, and you're not allowed to say this or think this as a med student, you're definitely not allowed to say it, although you can think it as a resident, and now I can carefully say it as an attending. This increased talent pool, I think is gonna be good for us because there are some physicians who probably should not be practicing, okay? And this is uncommon too, but a couple where I'm like, oh man. <laughs> But there's also just a, a huge amount of burnout. Um, so like if half of the doctors are, are burned out, you know, one of the symptoms of burnout is not really treating patients well and kind of looking with cynicism, things like that. A quarter of emergency medicine attendings and surveys say they won't even go into the same specialty. And I think it's like 20% say that they feel like undercompensated for what they do. These are all markers for doctors just kind of not being happy and kind of being miserable. Well, here's the problem when you're miserable. People who, who are miserable, they're not... They're not like me and they're not like you. They're not studying for fun. Like they're not reading up on interesting cases. Their interactions with patients not going to be quite as good. When they're at work, they're just not happy. So they're a little less pleasant to be around. So I've worked with plenty of people in med school residency who kind of fell into this category where they're just kind of unhappy. And as a result, um, it, their care, I feel like, can maybe be a little bit sloppy at times. I, I think that the competition moving forward, increasing that talent pool, will be able to get rid of a few people that probably should be replaced. But really, I think people are going to appreciate the specialty of what it is, because there's something I think about feeling like your job is a little more competitive um, that's going to make you more grateful for being able to be in the specialty. And again, I think this is a great specialty and there's lots of real strong positives about it. And so I'm cautiously optimistic moving forward that as we get into that increased competition for jobs, that people will be, that people will stay more up to date on medical stuff, treat patients a little bit better. And I think it's just going to kind of tighten up our game a little bit, but I think as a whole, the specialty will improve. So that's the first reason why I'm cautiously optimistic at the, this increased um, bolus of talent coming through. The second reason, and this one's totally my opinion, and this is a minority opinion, trust me. One of the things that really bothers me about, one of my least favorite things about practicing emergency medicine is the way staffing is done. So a lot of staffing 
essentially you have to figure out what your patients per hour is for a department at different periods of time. And then you hire a certain number of full-time equivalent physicians that you can, you can fund through those patients per hour, right? You have to figure out how much your income is so you know how many attendings you can hire and how many salaries you can pay. The problem is it's not uh, a steady flow throughout the day. It's not just two people show up every hour throughout the day. It's especially if you're at like a, a single doctor site or a site that's a little bit smaller, it's zero patients, zero patients, one patient, zero patient, 10 patients, right? And so you get these boluses. And when the bolus happens, there's something called Q theory, but essentially all of the patients, even though you're only seeing two an hour, like nine of them have to wait now. And so everything kind of gets delayed and they're a little less happy. And then if you have to see 10 patients and they all show up in an hour, you know, over the next two hours, you're seeing them all. So you only have a couple minutes per patient. I really feel like for me, I would prefer to be in a specialty where I get to read the patient's chart. A lot of them are really complicated. So I get to spend five minutes reviewing like a medically complex person and like their recent discharge summary and stuff like that. Spend a few minutes there. I think that every patient, regardless of what they're in for, deserves five minutes of just sitting and listening to them and hearing their story and being nice and pleasant and reassuring them. I think that it takes a couple minutes to do your charting. I think charting should be done real time, orders, all of that. And then I think you need to kind of go through everything, just reconsider, reread your note, make sure you've covered all your bases. And then I believe that every patient, most patients, 99% of the time are going to need a kind of, you, you kiss them goodbye. As they say, you go in, you say, these are your results. This is your treatment plan. You can always come back, all that kind of stuff. So this, is 30 minutes of work, you know, 20, 30 minutes of work. It's a little bit less if it's a strep throat or something. And it can be a little bit more if it's like a critically ill patient. But when you start getting these boluses of 10 people, I just wish we staffed to the, the heavy, um, influx periods a little bit more aggressively. And I would much rather have more time with patients and less pay than this whole, like, I only have a couple minutes per patient and I really have to multitask and I can't listen to people. And they're kind of just like, Oh, who is the doctor? I don't even know. Like a lot of times if a patient is feeling, they don't even know who their doctor is. It's because the doctor is being pulled 20 different directions. Right. And I would rather staff, where there's a little less pay, but a little better staffing so that the patient encounter goes better and that the quality of care is higher. And I would be willing to be paid a lot less money if that was the case. And I'm hopeful, although I don't know, I mean, I guess we can use our talent as especially however we want, but that we, part of that talent pool goes towards, you know what, we're just going to actually spend a little more time with the patient, increase the quality of care a little bit and get paid a little bit less and, and, and incorporate some of those doctors that way. Um, that's the second reason why I'm cautiously optimistic, very cautious on that one because um, I know I'm a minority on, on thinking that way. The third reason why I'm cautiously optimistic is because emergency medicine has always been kind of a jack-of-all-trades specialty. You see like a lot of emergency medicine doctors going into administration and things like that because we just interface with a lot of different parts of the hospital. We're like decent at a lot of things, and so that makes us very effective. We're a specialty that truly could go and expand in about 100 different directions and, and really grow. And I'm excited for these this again, influx of talent to come through and to see people starting to specialize and expand out different areas of the specialty. I think we could do a lot of growth in like geriatric emergency medicine. Like think of just with ultrasound, just ultrasound. Think of the growth and all of the focus on that. There's many more areas similar to that where you're like, man, you could do a whole fellowship on this and really specialize down our doctors. Um, and, I, and I'm excited to see kind of how we can grow and expand our specialty with all this increased talent. 
So that's the third reason why I'm cautiously optimistic. My advice to you is if you're a med student and you're looking into doing emergency medicine is five things. My first piece of advice, and this is the advice I would give my own children, even regardless of medicine, you should really focus on going into the specialty that you like doing the most while you're at work. I think way too much weight is getting put on lifestyle versus not lifestyle. I think way too much work is, or weight is being put on things like workforce projections and modeling and things like that. I really think you need to go into the specialty that you enjoy doing because you're going to be 30 years of your life, 40 years of your life, whatever it is, your healthiest years, your happiest years, you're going to be spending most of that working and your happiness in life is going to depend a lot on whether or not you enjoy work. Like it's, that's just how it is. This whole, like you don't want to be in the situation where you're working just for a paycheck and then you kind of enjoy the rest of the time. Like even if you go into a specialty where it's only 40 hours a week or 30 hours a week or whatever it is that you're at work, if you're miserable, that's still a lot of time in your life where you're miserable uh, when you just don't have to be. You really need to go into the specialty that you truly like doing the most. I'll give a caution here with emergency medicine. Emergency medicine has a tendency to be a little bit over Overrated. And the reason it seems to be overrated at times, I think a lot of people think it's like this knife and gun club trauma specialty um, and that everything's always like this exciting high acuity resuscitation and things like that. That is very much not the case. I like emergency medicine for reasons outside of that. But when I'm, you know, interviewing residents, when I was interviewing residents when I was at, in a residency or when I talk to med students now who are considering the specialty and they say things like, well, I really focus on like where the trauma training is really good. Like trauma is just a minimal, minimal part of the specialty. And so like, let's say you go to like a big urban trauma center, knife and gun club. I mean, the, the roles become so small and defined that it's not it's not like that exciting. Like I do, you know, airway usually. And then if a trauma surgeon got in a car accident on the way to the, the trauma alert or something, you know, maybe I have to do some supervision and know a couple procedures, but really, I mean, the, you get these big trauma centers, your role is very minimal. You go more rural. Well, now you have to be able to know anything. You have to know how to put in lines and maybe crack a chest, probably contraindicated if you're at a real site, but you know, you need to know the full spectrum of trauma resuscitation, but it just doesn't come that often because the traumas go to trauma centers. So it's really a small, small part of the specialty. Resuscitations of course happen, um, like medical resuscitations happen, you know, maybe once a shift type of a thing, but it's not like it's the only thing you do. It's a lot of, it's a lot of geriatrics. It's a lot of low acuity worried well. It's a lot of kind of motor vehicle accidents. I'm on, now my neck is sore type thing. So it's especially that can maybe be a little bit overrated if you don't fully understand it. So I'd be careful going into it and being like, this is my favorite specialty before you've even done a rotation in it. But assuming that you've done a rotation in it and you've seen the full spectrum, right? It's a lot of short of breath people and a lot of people with belly pain and vomiting. If you, if you still like it, um, I would go into the specialty that you like doing the most. My second piece of advice is you need to advocate for the specialty that you're going into. So major organizations within emergency medicine, be ASAP, the college, uh, AAEM or the academy, AMRA is a big one. There's some other ones as well. These organizations aren't just like wonderful, perfect little organizations that are advocating on your, on your behalf, whether you're involved or not. I'll give, you know, I have to be careful here, but there's been many occasions where I'm supremely frustrated with ASAP. 
And um, I've expressed those frustrations and I won free AirPods because I filled out a survey, but I'm still very frustrated. And I've even considered dropping my dues um, just because I'm like, I just, I, it, it bothers me so much how they function. Um, but I really don't think that the right answer is just to pull out of the specialty at the national level. I think we need to, to increase our voice, increase our feedback and speak out something against some things. The thing that probably bothers everyone the most, as far as like emergency medicine attendings about like ASAP is ASAP is very much in the pocket seemingly of the uh, contract management groups. And I'm not going to name any names because I don't want this to get taken down and stuff. I'm sure I could get in trouble, but, um, Contract management groups generally have a bad reputation for being abusive towards doctors and not acting in the best interest of patients. Their, their reputation precedes them. You know, you hear stories about doctors at some of these major emergency medicine uh, groups. You know, the doctor will say, hey, you know, like, I'm worried about this just happened during COVID, but hey, I'm worried that we're doing this. This is unsafe for patients. And then they'll be like, well, if you feel that way, you're fired because they don't want to risk the contract with the hospital. And these groups are giving tons and tons of money towards these organizations. Even EMRA, who has been very outspoken about the future of emergency medicine and the workforce thing, like their most recent EMRA magazine came completely encircled and wrapped in like this piece of paper that I had to tear through advertising for one of these contract management groups. So there's huge financial conflict of interest issues. And I think we need to speak out against that. Um, and there's, you know, there's great things about the specialty too. I'm not here just to complain uh, ASAP specifically. I really like all of their little clinical policies and stuff that they put out. They do a pretty good conference. But you need to, if you're going into this specialty, you need to speak up. You need to make your voice heard in a way that's kind of channeled to be effective in talking to your EMRA representatives, talking to your ASAP representatives, talking, you know, getting involved with a the academy, um, if that's your thing. And so that would be my second piece of advice. My third piece of advice is to get really, really good at personal finance. And I could, I would love to do a whole series on personal finance for doctors. White Coat Investor is pretty good. I would present the information differently if I was teaching you how to do it and make it a little more applicable to you. Maybe I'll do that in the future. Um, but the key thing is keeping your debt down. So the problem is in med school, you get so debt numb that you think that it's just going to get paid off someday. The problem is, is not necessarily, okay? So you can do the math. So it's called the debt to income ratio. If your debt becomes more, if it's three times higher than your debt to income ratio. There's this whole white coat investor article on it. We'll link it. But if your debt becomes three times greater than your gross income, it's basically impossible to pay off in any you know reasonable period of time. So um, you're talking, you're going to be living like a resident for your entire career. Okay. So meaning let's say you make uh, $200,000 a year in emergency medicine or something is gross, which is probably a little low, but then you have $600,000 in debt. Like you're in trouble. Like you, you may not actually be able to pay off that debt. Um, and the thing is, is when every little Starbucks you, you pay or take in the apartment, you're like, well, it's only a couple hundred dollars more a month for the nicer apartment. So maybe I should just do the upgrade of the apartment. I live there after all, I'm working hard. That increased spending really does add up. And then you have the interest on top of it accumulating while you're deferring payments through med school and residency. That debt can really, really snowball on you quick. And it take it, and it really is like an anchor. Um, again, there's like mathematical 
limits to the debt that you're allowed to hit as a med student or resident, well, you'll never be able to pay it off. And you're not, you can't discharge it in bankruptcy. So you get completely screwed. And um, even if your debt to income is like one to one, two to one, you know, it's somewhat reasonable. You have $200,000 in debt, you're making $200,000 a year. It's still, while you have it, it's really, it, it subconsciously affects, I think, your practice. I think you're a much better doctor when you're debt free. When I, before, so like right now, I'm debt-free and I have an emergency fund of six months of expenses. A few years ago, I still was paying big debt payments and things like that, and I hadn't paid it off yet. And I, was, I would get really nervous at work every time like an administrator would say, like, you're not doing this right, or I'd get a patient complaint or things like that. Like, it was extremely stressful, and it affected my practice because I didn't want to get in trouble. And I, it's just because you can't lose the job. Like, when you're, you're like, I have to keep this job – it really um, impacts your practice. And as soon as I paid it off, and now I'm kind of in this thing where it's like, you know, I'm just going to speak up for patients. And if you don't like it, then we can have a discussion and it's going to be a, a, a healthy, um, polite discussion. I've written long emails to administrators, you know, outlaying data for certain things that I get in trouble for. And it just makes you a stronger doctor when you don't have, when you're able to get that debt out. And that's kind of the, the subtle side of this. But in general, I mean, you're, if you're going into a specialty where you're potentially looking at decreased pay and increased job competition in 10 years, you really need to keep that debt number down because you, that's like the one thing you can do to protect yourself financially. So that'd be my third piece of advice, and I can expand that out in future episodes if you're interested. Just email me. The fourth uh, piece of advice that I would have for you, most of you should not be going for public service loan forgiveness. If you get a normal paying job, you should be paying down the debt aggressively, trying to get it paid off within five years, and not doing public service loan forgiveness. Um, that's kind of my general opinion. However, in, a, in going into a market where there's going to be increased competition, in a worst case scenario where you can't get a job out of residency, which I think is unlikely, but certainly going to happen for some people, you might need to pivot into more of like a public health role or going out to a rural site or doing, you know, many of these jobs you're going to turn to that pay less but are eligible for public service loan forgiveness, some of those jobs will still be open. And I really think you need to, as you're going through residency and potentially felt like, again, if you do a fellowship out of residency and things like that, you really need to have that public service loan forgiveness set up in case you need to pivot into that. And we've all heard stories about the public service loan forgiveness falling through because of one misfiled paperwork and things like that. I think I would proceed throughout residency with the mindset that, I'm not going to do public service loan forgiveness. I'm going to keep my debt to a minimum. But if I have to, I have proof of every single payment and all of that. And you, I mean, essentially, you have to be ready to, to sue the government for your forgiveness, you know, because a lot of people have had to do that where they're like, here's 30, you know, 10 years worth of data and payments. And I have them all meticulously filed in order. There was no mispayment. You know, I think you need to be very, very intentional with making sure you understand public service loan forgiveness in its entirety. And you're keeping all of your documents in a nice file and really ready to rumble if you need to pivot into that. That'd be my fourth, my fourth move for you. Then my fifth piece of advice, and this is, I think this is a really important piece of advice, but 
when you're applying for residencies and you're going into emergency medicine, it's becoming increasingly important that you choose a really strong residency. A lot of people are picking residencies based off location. Um, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to travel to Southern California for a while? You know, like that kind of thing. I would be very, very careful thinking like that because your residency choice is going to be very impactful on your future job. I would be choosing residencies in the location where you're going to practice long term, which is usually going to be around either your family or your significant other's family. So that's the first thing. And then you want to choose residencies that have a really strong reputation for turning out good clinical doctors. A lot of these big academic centers, and I won't name names, very prestigious sounding residencies. Lots of people rank these residencies number one this year. And when you get down to the actual job, we know where the good residents come from and where the not good residents tend to come from. And it's not always the big prestigious institution. I would be very, very cautious. Like I'm, I want to pick strong training and you want that home field advantage of practicing and doing your residency in the location where you're going to be looking for jobs right after you graduate. I would be very, very careful with how you're picking your residency, not be sloppy there, not picking somewhere just because it's warm, not picking somewhere just because it has a good name, but no, where are you going to train me to be an excellent doctor in what location am I going to be long-term? Be very um, cognizant of where you're choosing your res residency. And this is not to say that uh, all academic institutions are bad or that all community programs are bad. Um, and you can be a great resident graduating from any of those. So it's not like this is like a life and death, like, thing that's going to, you know, determine your whole future. But um, there's just some institutions that are just going to, on average, really crank out solid residents. And I would seek out those programs and ask a lot of people and make sure you're getting good training. That would be my fifth piece of advice. If I was to summarize this whole episode, I would say I'm optimistic about the future of the specialty, though optimistically or cautiously so. Go into the spec. Don't. A lot of people made a tragic mistake this last year. We did not match well as a specialty. Um, There's a lot of open slots and things like that. And maybe those were people who weren't that interested in emergency medicine to begin with. I don't know. But I, I feel really bad for anyone that that really loved emergency medicine and just got scared away because of a projection or a Reddit post and and is do, going into something that they like less. You know, I'd be very. Um, I'd just be very – I'd go into what you like. It's really important that you're going to be competitive when you graduate residency. So your residency selection is important. Your work ethic is important. But if you're going into the specialty that you like, that's not going to be hard for you to be competitive because you're naturally just more invested in the specialty. I hope that's helpful. Send me emails, Zach at emclerkship.com. There's all sorts of stuff I could have talked about that I didn't talk about for the sake of time. This is already a very long episode. So until next time, keep working hard. Keep studying and be sure to enjoy your shift.